From O'Melveny and Myers, this is The Cramdown with Nancy Mitchell and John Rapasardi. Welcome to this episode of The Cramdown. John and I are excited to talk today with our partners, Jennifer Taylor and Daniel Shama, about the lender-on-lender priming issues that we're seeing in the marketplace today. John, what are we going to cover specifically? Well, we're going to talk about uh, the practice of priming, uh, which involves the debtor shifting collateral and assets away from uh, the core lender group uh, to new tranches of debt uh, that are structurally or directly senior to their existing lenders. Um, and there's controversy behind this practice because uh, in the deals we're going to talk about, holders uh, that are in the minority lender group are, are being left behind and not including in these uh, tranches. And the question is, is this permissible under existing law, under existing documentation? And what can be done, if anything, uh, by uh, minority lenders to protect themselves in these deals? And at the same time, uh, borrowers and debtors uh, mindful of the need to, be, to have flexibility in these transactions for certain amendments uh, that don't uh, lead to hold up uh, by minority lenders. So these are the types of issues we're going to be talking about uh, today. So just Daniel or Jennifer, if you could talk a little bit about at least one of the kinds of transactions I know has to do with non-pro rata transactions. I'm, I'm curious how that, that works. Sure. Uh, I'll start and obviously Jennifer should chime in. So what we're seeing quite a bit of in the market is um, the uh, transactions that are being divvied up in a way that is not necessarily proportionate to the existing lenders' holdings. So what does that mean exactly? So your typical uh, loan documentation normally has um, restrictions and uh, requirements that payments, investments, and all sorts of uh, potential transactions be done ratably. So if you are a 10% lender in a facility and the borrower wants to make a payment on account of its loan, you are entitled to 10% of the uh, of the payment that the borrower wants to make. What we have seen, and we'll get into this in a lot more detail today, is that there's quite a bit of flexibility in a lot of these documents. And so what has gone on is a subset of the lenders, not 100% of them, but a subset of them, usually constituting a majority, you know, north of 50%, have approached companies or companies have approached them and have asked them for uh, new financing, new liquidity into the business. But rather than doing it in the traditional way, where if a new loan was going to come in, it would be offered out to all of the lenders on a ratable basis, this subset of lenders will use their majority holdings to of the, of the loan to uh, acquire for themselves an outsized share of whatever the new investment opportunity is. So if you have a company that has $100 of secured borrowing that uh, is existing, holders of $51 of that um, will then say, okay, we're going to put in a new investment into the business. It will have uh, enhanced protections. It will have enhanced economic benefits. And we're not going to share it with the other 49% of the lenders. We're going to keep 100% of this new loan for ourselves. And that has become more and more prevalent and in a lot more uh, examples in recent, in recent months during the COVID crisis. And it's garnered, as John was saying, quite a bit of controversy, particularly from the, the lenders who are not in the club 
of those who are participating in these transactions. So, so the um, minority lenders, the lenders that are outside these transactions, they will refer to what's called sacred rights and that these deals are infringing on their sacred rights. Maybe, Jennifer, you can talk about exactly what are these sacred rights and on the same breath, uh, trapdoors and um, how that's all addressed in these types of transactions. Sure. So, you know, the idea is that there's a, a certain set of protections in a credit agreement that you agree to upfront when you close initially. But of course, you know, over time and, and to engage in transactions like these, there, there's probably amendments that are going to need to be made. Um, it, the default rule is that many, most amendments uh, under a credit agreement can be undertaken with a simple majority of the lenders. And usually it's a, a majority of the outstanding principal may also include uh, a majority of the unfunded revolver, the un- unfunded commitments. So if you have a majority, you can effectuate most amendments. There are certain, however, what we call sacred rights that can't be altered uh, with a simple majority. And those sorts of sacred rights might include things like the maturity date of the loan or the principal amount of the loan, the interest rate, certain core economics that, that the lenders agreed to. But there are certain other terms that might also fall into that sacred rights category that would include potentially this pro rata sharing concept that Daniel mentioned, the idea that everybody takes ratably in, in any distributions. Uh, that, though, you know, we're not seeing, I think, uniformity. And in fact, you know, it's not a firm, completely sacred, right? Or else I don't think any of these transactions could be done. These uh, borrowers and, and lenders that are executing these transactions are relying on certain exceptions to the pro rata provision. Either it's in some documents, you actually might see the pro rata sharing provision subject to waiver amendment by a simple majority. That's probably not too many documents. Most of them still require 100% consent to vary that pro rata sharing provision. But there also might be other exceptions to that pro rata sharing rule that uh, some of these transactions are relying on. In particular, uh, there's an exception to the pro rata sharing rule that we see for uh, buybacks of debt in an open market transaction. And with a number of these uh, cases, Serta Simmons, uh, more recently, board writers, they're relying on the ability to buy back the consenting lender's uh, debt or exchange the ex- consenting lender's debt uh, on a quote-unquote open market transaction in order to be able to exchange their existing debt for something higher up uh, in the priority waterfall. Uh, and, and that's something that, that we can talk about that's become you know subject to dispute whether or not offering a, a limited number of lenders and not all lenders this op- opportunity to participate in this transaction can actually be called uh, a, a true open market transaction if it's if it's limited in 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 the ability to participate the other sacred right 
and I guess maybe I should say it's not a sacred right, but something that's uh, at issue in these sorts of transactions as well is the question of subordination, whether or not subordinating the debt is a sacred right. And in, in most of these cases, and again, in order to be able to facilitate these sorts of transactions, subordinating the lien of the existing lenders isn't a sacred right. And that's key, very key on in the ability for them to be able to do this. If subordination was a sacred right, it's very likely that these wouldn't be able to get through. And I think I'm seeing when I'm documenting these deals on the front end, more and more uh, syndication groups pushing for uh, including uh, subordination as one of the sacred rights in order to be able to avoid this result. So there's a lot there to talk about. I guess maybe we should go back to the beginning a little bit. And Daniel or Jennifer, could you could you just describe a couple of the transactions where this started and kind of what they did so we have some some background for all of this? So what happens in these sorts of transactions and and one label that you've we've started hearing in the industry for them is up-tiering transactions. The well that sounds good, up-tiering. I like it. Up-tiering. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think you know you you hear the term trap doors as well. <laughs> and I, I this is not a trap door in the floor. It's more like a trap door in the ceiling where you're pushing collateral up up to certain lenders. Is is how I look at it. If you're needing a visual, um, so the company in these transactions is incurring new money, and this is what happened in Serta Simmons, Murray Energy, Board Riders, um, very recently Trimark. They're incurring super priority loans or senior loans that are going to be senior in lean priority to the existing debt. And so they're relying on either a uh, an existing exception to the debt covenant that maybe gives them a certain ability to incur certain uh, incremental debt or uh, the ability to amend their debt covenant to incur this additional debt. They're also relying on the ability to amend their lien covenant in order to grant the lien securing this new debt. And as I mentioned, the ability to um, effectively subordinate the existing debt without uh, tripping up a, a sacred right. And so to induce the lenders to consent to those transactions, to the incurrence of, of this senior debt, they're offering the consenting lenders uh, a, 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 some a, additional protections to their existing debt. So if you consent to us incurring the new debt and the new lien uh, to bring in new money to the company, we will give your existing debt the benefit of having priority over uh, non-participating existing debt. So what you end up with is a capital structure that has the new money loan on top in first priority, the existing debt of the participating lenders following just behind in second priority, and the existing debt of the non-participating lenders having third priority, having been moved down to, to the bottom of, of the capital structure. So why why is this why is this happening? 
I mean, why did this, I don't recall this happening two or three years ago. So why do we think this is happening now? So I, I think, I think Nancy, it's a couple of things. Um, the, the seeds of this were really planted a couple of years ago with J. Crew um, and folks who are listening to this podcast may be familiar with uh, getting J. Crewed and, you know, and, or as, as I've heard some people call it J. Screwed, <laughs> where, uh, you know, the, a sponsor owned company uh, took advantage of flexibility in their loan documents to raise financing um, and move collateral away from their lenders. So I, I do think this has sort of been coming for a while. This has but been in the capital Daniel, market. Before you go down that route, in terms yeah. of the facts of Mur- Murray and Soda, wasn't that a, a, a different situation as opposed to J. Crew? Maybe we can point that out. Because in, J- in, in Murray and Soda, um, the um, collateralization, if you will, um, the, uh, the minority uh, uh, group was not, so to speak, being cut out. But the, in J. Crew, there was a shifting of assets away from. Interesting, uh, and maybe we can comment on that. And and one other question I have is, in the Murray and Serta situation, the minority lenders uh, is the problem being caused by the fact that a lot of these lenders are, are CLOs and they have an inability to consent or participate um, in these offer transactions. So, so a lot in there, John. So let's unpack that a little bit. So. Certainly, um, there are differences between J. Crew from a couple of years ago um, and Serta and, and Murray and, and Board Riders and the other deals that have cropped up in, in the last couple of months. And I think you're exactly right. One of the chief distinctions between J. Crew and Neiman Marcus, for example, on the one hand, and some of these deals on the other, is the, the deals that we've seen you know, over the last six, eight months or so have been not about moving collateral away from, from lenders as much as it is... Um, improving the position of one subset of lenders, um, you know, arguably at the expense of the other. And I think one of the reasons why there's a, a, there's a couple of factors to kind of going back to uh, tying together your question and what Nancy was alluding to earlier. Um, one of them is relates to what, what Jennifer was talking about, which is loan documentation, um, having a lot of flexibility and opening up opportunities for lenders uh, to collaborate with each other and, and pursue these kinds of transactions. Um, oftentimes, um, with the co- you know, obviously with the cooperation of the company, um, which brings you to the second factor that I think is really driving a lot of this, which is you have different stakeholders um, in the business that are facing several types of financial distress that these companies are facing, and they have their purposes could potentially be either aligned or at odds depending on where they sit in the capital structure. So you have companies that have uh, liquidity stress, right? They're, you know, particularly since COVID hit, um, you know, businesses in retail and oil and gas and other industries that are, you know, facing, you know, reduced or even eliminated revenues, um, potential covenant issues where you have, uh, uh, you know, incurrence and maintenance tests that may be tripped as a result of it, as well as uh, challenges with upcoming maturities and 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 having difficulty tapping. Uh, credit markets to refinance out their debt. So you have companies sort of facing massive amounts of stress. And on the other, uh, these companies are dealing with shareholders who perhaps look at the COVID situation as, hey, this is a temporary blip. You know, I can't, you know, it, it's unfair or it's not appropriate for me to lose my equity stake. You know, as a result of COVID, this business was worth a lot more money beforehand. You have existing lenders who perhaps want to preserve their position in the capital structure uh, and want to avoid dilution. 
And then you have new lenders with dry powder who are looking for opportunities to invest in protected positions at attractive values. And so I think what you have is these factors, some of which have been sort of percolating for a while, some of which are really brought on by COVID, coming together um, all kind of around the same time to drive a lot of these transactions. Which brings me to the last part of it, which I think, John, you brought up, which is very, very astute, which is the participants in these lending facilities are pretty different from where they were five or 10 years ago. Um, you know, gone are the days where your first lien, you know, lend, your first lien term loan group consists of a number of investment banks, you know, uh, that, you know, maybe originated the loan and, you know, are expected to get paid out at par um, and are now, you know, it, you know, the, the credit has moved over to their workout group. There are a number of, uh, you know, oftentimes there are hedge funds, mutual funds that are that are very active in investing in this space. Um, many of which are CLOs, uh, which uh, we can get onto this in a lot more detail, but have real restrictions on the kind of holdings that they can have in their vehicles. And particularly, uh, they have restrictions on the ability to uh, raise funds, uh, to participate in new investments, and restrictions on being able to take equity and restructurings all of which has accelerated many of these transactions where lenders who don't have those restrictions see opportunities to take advantage of flexibility in loan documentation and looseness in loan documentation to uh, drive uh, uh, transactions and restructurings. So in Murray, the terms of the credit agreement required all of the, the affected lenders to agree to the release of all or substantially all of the collateral. Uh, what did the court find in that case? What, what, why didn't that language um, uh, protect uh, against the amendment that left uh, the Maori lenders with a, a subordinated lien position? What was the court's view on that? The, the usual answer to that question is that a, a subordination is not the same as a release. So That's if you're, right. sim- if you're right. simply just pushing the existing debt down in the stack, you've still got your collateral. You've got a lien on all assets. It very well might be the case that it's worthless now because you're underwater, uh, but but technically it still exists. So you're not violating that sacred right that says no releases. So the court basically said your drafting wasn't as broad as it should have been. Right. So Lisa, the next question, would that prevent priming um, uh, through structural subordination, as we saw in J. Crew. Well, I think it really depends. I mean, look, one of the things I think one of the lessons from a lot of these cases, John, is that you got the, the contract language is is key here, and so you're going to have to look at the specific indenture or credit agreement to evaluate whether it's permissible or not. I mean, I think what you find in a lot of these cases, and we can talk about the litigation strategies that that some lenders have pursued to. Uh, try to derail some of these transactions. But courts, you know, tend to adhere to the plain and unambiguous language, you know, unless there truly is something egregious going on. And so, you know, oftentimes you'll have lenders that will take the position that this is so fundamentally at odds with our commercial expectations, right? We we made an investment in this with the with the commercial expectation that we were going to be the senior uh, tranche of the debt in this business, that the, the number of exceptions uh, would be incredibly limited. And these clever lawyers have you know, exploited uh, various provisions in ways that they were never ten- intended to be used for to effectuate an outcome that is diametrically at odds with what our commercial expectations are. And that all sounds nice in theory, 
But at the end of the day, the courts are going to look at the contract and they're going to look at the credit agreement and they're going to make an evaluation based on what the clear and unambiguous terms of that uh, agreement say. And so if the, uh, you know, the collateral release provision, for example, which, as Jennifer was saying, is usually a sacred right, you normally you can't effectuate a release of collateral without unanimous consent and you can't amend that provision uh, without you without affected lender consent. If you're not actually technically releasing the collateral, you're simply subordinating it, you're doing something else to it, you know, it's it's a hard argument to make because courts, generally speaking, and these are usually litigated in New York, so there's, you know, there's a developing case law in this area, are going to follow the plain and unambiguous terms of the contract. So I was talking to a banker the other day who told me a couple of things. I'm curious how you guys react to this. The first is that this is really much more an issue for the bond, mar- for the for the debt markets, the credit market, than it is for the bond market because of the way the documents are written. And the second is that the way to fix it, if you really wanted to, is to change the documents. But they don't really see that happening because there's plenty of capital chasing these deals, even with these kinds of trap doors or trap ceilings, as Jennifer referred to them in the documents. I'm curious if, if that's what you think or seeing and what you think the market's response would be. I think that's an interesting point because I think these sorts of transactions, they're unusual and relatively novel in the loan agreement context, but I don't think they're anything new in the bond context. We've seen, you know, bond exchanges for years and you don't see typically this sorts of this sort of reaction. And I think that's because, you know, indentures are, are almost built to uh, facilitate these kinds of transactions, whereas loan agreements aren't necessarily, or at least, you know, as as Daniel was suggesting, while while the language might be there, the expectation has been, and the historical practice has been that these sorts of transactions haven't been been done uh, in the loan context historically. There are some incremental changes to loan docs happening in reaction to these sorts of things to address your last question Nancy uh, we are seeing you know what's called J crew blockers uh, develop in, in the last couple of years since J crew they're you know relatively narrow limitations on the ability to transfer IP and brands in in most instances to very narrowly get at the very specific transfer that happened there so there's probably a number of ways that you can still get around even the the new language that's coming up to deal with those. And I, I don't think these J crew blockers that we've been seeing are, are tailored to solve even all of the issues or all of the uh, trapdoors that were made use of in uh, J crew's deal. So, you know, there's still you know, huge baskets, investment baskets that we're seeing, transfer baskets. And and until those sorts of things get addressed or a really close look at, I think you're still going to have uh, these sorts of things getting pushed through. And, and I think you're right. There's still motivation to uh, try to preserve that flexibility by what sponsors or majority lenders, certainly the borrowers. Can you guys talk about Revlon and uh, why that transaction was dubbed a, a sham revolver and how that fits into uh, uh, everything we're talking about? What, the paying $900 million by accident overnight? That, that, that's a transaction, <laughs> John? That, that was a first. Um, 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll take a start, but obviously Jennifer, uh, should, should weigh in as well. Um, that one, uh, was another, uh, recent transaction that got a lot of attention, uh, for, I, I will call it creative lawyering where you had, um, certain amendments that, uh, the borrower and certain lenders wanted to do. Um, but they didn't necessarily, at least on the principal amount of loan holdings, uh, had the numbers, uh, had the votes to do it. So what they did was they had the ability in the loan documents to increase the size of the revolver, uh, the revolving loan facility. And the language in the documentation allowed the company to count unfunded revolver commitments as debt holdings for purposes of accounting votes for proposed amendments to do an exchange offer that they were trying to do, uh, which, you know, again, was in this uh, bucket of of uh, transactions that uh, were being uh, pursued by you no know, not unanimous consent of lenders. We could talk about what happened when some of those lenders who were not a part of that group you know got paid off uh, supposedly inadvertently, which is now the subject of litigation. But it was another example of you know looseness in the language and the documents being used to uh, pursue a transaction, which you know from some lenders' perspectives may not have been quite what they were expecting to happen. What about the concept of expanding uh, the definition of pro rata to um, basically apply uh, to existing collateral that's being used uh, for any lender to take a position senior to other existing lenders? Is that uh, something that uh, can be used as a defensive mechanism uh, without unnecessarily uh, you know, tying the hands of borrowers going forward? Well, I think that's a matter of eliminating these exceptions to the pro rata sharing provision that I mentioned earlier. So these these transactions are typically making use of this ability to buy back debt. You know, there's some arguments to be made whether the a debt for debt swap of existing debt for the new debt secured by senior collateral uh, is in fact what's intended by those exceptions or um, the like. And so you certainly can cut off the ability to do that by eliminating these exceptions, although you may very well be you know, eliminating the ability for what I'll call bona fide buybacks to happen, and you'll be el- eliminating some you know, opportunities for real bona fide liquidity and exit opportunities for lenders. So, you know, that that may be a, a double-edged sword from the lender's perspective. Yeah, there's definitely a, a law of unintended consequences flavor to a lot of this. Um, you know, going back to a, a question Nancy asked a, a few minutes ago about, you know, uh, what kind of pushback, you know, can can lenders try to pursue to protect themselves from uh, you know, borrowers uh, down the line taking advantage of these documents. And look, I mean, I think the trend, it, you know, this is not a novel observation, but the trend has been towards, you know, looseness in these documents and loosening of covenants and the like. The one, though, it's interesting because it's not like it's impossible <laughs> for, you know, lenders to insist on protections uh, in, in loan documentation against transactions that, you know, are unexpected. I think of the Maycole cases, which were all the rage three, four years ago and all the litigation around whether make holes were, were due and owing and you had Momentum and EFH and a bunch of other cases, you know, once those started percolating and restructurings um, where make holes were being challenged and, and lenders were finding themselves 
uh, you know, companies were filing for bankruptcy, you know, immediately refinancing their loans with dip financing and avoiding avoiding the make whole payments. That got fixed really quick. Um, you know, the loan documentation, you know, really quickly started making clear that you know, in certainly insolvent debtors, in certain circumstances, even insolvent debtors, make holes would be due. And so it's not as if the loan market, you know, is incapable of of negotiating of negotiating you know protections that uh, to prevent uh, transactions from taking place that could be adverse to certain lenders you know given the liquidity in the market and a lot of money out there right now for a lot of these transactions it's a tough environment for sure yeah i guess it's a little different because in the make whole cases it was sort of the debtor on one side and the lenders on the other and in this situation it's kind of the debtors and some of its lenders on one side yeah. and yeah. other lenders on others. And so the market motivations for correcting it may be different because people, there are people who are making money on, on the fact that there are holes in the documents. Um, if I'm somebody who doesn't want one of these transactions to go through, can I just sue? I mean, we seem to sue about everything these days. So can I just sue? Do I have a claim? What do I do? So the answer is yes. It's the American way um, <laughs> to file lawsuits. So I, I, but I think we need to be, you know, realistic um, about what those lawsuits look like because the recent trend has not been minority lender friendly. So I, I tend to bucket um, the types of claims that could be pursued into two categories. The most straightforward and really what we've been talking about this entire time are breach of contract lawsuits. Right? These are arguments that the credit agreement uh, precludes the transaction the, you know it's you know these are technical arguments around you know exactly the issues that that Jennifer was just talking about earlier around the amendment rights the collateral release provisions the uh, the exceptions to the pro rata sharing provision what is an open market transaction and the like um, those claims have largely been unsuccessful probably the most prominent one, uh, recently was the Serta Simmons uh, litigation where minority lenders uh, came in and filed a lawsuit in New York State Court. Um, they sought an injunction to stop the transaction and were unsuccessful. The court uh, found that the terms of the transaction, as I was alluding to earlier, it's a, it's a contract claim. So what does the contract say? It's clear. It's unambiguous. No one's arguing that it is ambiguous. And so it's a pretty straightforward analysis for the court. I think minority lenders recognize that it's it, that's a challenging pathway given the way these documents are drafted. So, which brings you to the second category of these claims, which are you know quasi contractual claims, and so these are things like good faith and fair dealing claims, fraudulent transfer claims, depending on the way the transaction structured, unjust enrichment, um, and generally speaking, these claims are can potentially be. Uh, more fruitful because you're not bound by the clear and unambiguous uh, language in the agreement. And so you have a little more flexibility in how you plead them, but they face the challenge that they tend to be hard to pursue when you have a written agreement that governs the, the conduct at issue. You normally cannot use, for example, a good faith and fair dealing claim to gap fill, right? So you have a contract, there's a gap in it, uh, the borrower and the majority of the lenders are taking advantage of that gap. Normally, you can't say, well, wait a second, we get that there's a gap in the contract, but that's crazy. Um, you violated the good faith and fair dealing. The law generally is you can't do that. And so it's definitely an uphill battle, but there, you know, a lot of these minority lenders don't really have much of a choice. And I think for a lot of them, the question really is, how do you define success and what is it you're trying to achieve? Because for a lot of them, it's not really about winning the lawsuit and getting a judgment 
that um, a declaratory judgment, for example, that the transaction violates the credit agreement or in even necessarily getting an injunction like the lenders in Serta Simmons tried to get. What you're really trying to do is simply throw sand in the gears, right? You're trying to slow the thing down, uh, get a court to pay attention, maybe get some discovery and try to cut a different deal. Oftentimes, that, you know, try to get yourself into the deal and there's a smaller set of lenders that are on the outside of the deal. And so we, and we see that quite a bit as well in a lot of these transactions. So, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of other avenues for relief, particularly if there isn't a bankruptcy pending, um, which, you know, oftentimes gives a little more flexibility. But there, where there are um, a forum for it, it's, a, it's an uphill battle for sure. So, so in terms of uh, the takeaways from uh, everything we've been talking about, it sounds like there really is not that much minority lenders can do. Uh, to protect themselves, uh, except for maybe nibbling at the edges in terms of uh, what we're talking about, changes to the definition of pro rata or changing uh, required lending lending percentages. Uh, but that doesn't seem as though that will take hold, that uh, past patterns, uh, historical uh, uh, ways of doing practice in this credit documentation will stay in place. So it really becomes a uh, a question of of pragmatic uh, outcome here, and I think what Daniel is, is saying is uh, that minority lenders uh, can and will try to challenge and, and bring lawsuits and uh, try to cut a better deal. That's what's being proposed. Uh, but other than that, it just seems as though uh, it would be difficult to change the patterns of practice that have led up to all of this. Yep, from a documentation perspective, uh, I, I agree with you, John, in terms of minority lender protections, you know, up front at the documentation phase, look closely at those sacred rights, whether subordination should be treated just like lien releases are treated, whether there's some strengthening you could do to the pro rata sharing provision. You know, maybe one thing that bears emphasis is that some of these transactions, the earlier ones, J. Crew and others, they got accomplished without really needing to do violence to any uh, pro rata sharing uh, concept or, or subordination concept. They just made the borrower itself was able to push a lot of those through without any sort of amendment. They just relied on some existing investment baskets, existing. Uh, transfer baskets, existing concepts related to unrestricted subsidiaries. So whether you're a minority lender whether or in the majority, you probably want to spend some time at the front end, you know, reevaluating those sorts of provisions as well. So that um, regardless of, of where you find yourself as a lender, you've, you've got some protection there too. So essentially preventing or guarding against the shifting of collateral value from subsidiary level where you have a lien to holding company level where uh, you don't have a lien and you become essentially uh, structurally subordinated. Exactly. Daniel, anything you'd like to, to cover here at the end in terms of where people go from here? No, I think we've covered it. I mean, look, I think everything that uh, Jennifer and John were just alluding to is, is spot on. You got to scrub these docs on the front end. Um, you know, courts are really going to follow the language of the document. It is very hard to to uh, get a to get a court to get away from that. Um, and so, understanding what your rights and what your protections are on the front end is key. Even if even if the negotiating dynamic uh, um, is such that you know closing these trap ceilings or trap doors is, is not a realistic outcome. 
um, at least knowing where you are and what what you're vulnerable to um, is is really really key. Because if if you don't know if you don't appreciate what your position is, um, you know, in the in the credit, then um, it reminds me of the old adage: if 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 uh, you don't know who the sucker at the table is, it's probably you. Um, so if you don't if you don't know where you are in the credit agreement, chances are you're in a really vulnerable position. So knowing that, understanding that is absolutely critical. And at least you can build it into the price that you pay. You know, if you're trading and coming in later, uh, you know how to value that that position. Yeah, it seems like knowing your rights is really important here. I would say that I think that this is one of those problems that the market will probably address moving forward, or maybe not, depending on whether the market views it as a problem. We'll be interested to talk to you guys in six months or so and see whether we've seen any changes in the market. Thank you very much for joining us today. Your insights were really appreciated. And folks, we look forward to uh, talking to you on the next episode of The Cramdown. Thank you for listening to O'Melveny's The Cramdown Podcast. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP, Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York. 10036 telephone 212 326 2000